Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Generation Elect. Before we start, I want to remind you to rate our podcast on iTunes. This can be done by scrolling down to our page and clicking the stars. That would be really great if you could do that. It really makes me happy, of course. Anyway, today on this pod, we'll be discussing the bombshell Gordon Sondland testimony that sent ruptures through the Trump administration and shed new light into this investigation. After that, we'll be discussing the fifth Democratic debate and give our takes on the always evolving 2020 primary. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Griffin Roeder. Griffin, how are you? Hey, Henry. Well, it's been quite a week. Actually, last weekend at a community service event, I met with Congressman Paul Tonko and I mentioned the podcast to him. So there is a possibility that Congressman Tonko could be viewing this podcast. So yeah. if you are, hello, Congressman. I was the person you saw last weekend at the Day of Simple Giving in Albany. Um, I was not from Mahanason. Um, I was that guy. <laughs> what did you say? That's awesome. What did you say to him? Um, well, I told him about the podcast, how the two of us run a political podcast run by kids. Um, also, he mistook my orange and black track jacket for uh, Mahanason because Mahanason has the same school colors. Also apparently. orange and black. Yeah. Yep. That's pretty awesome. That you should definitely pursue like an interview or something with him if that's possible. But mm-hmm. uh, what was I going to say? Yeah. So, um, I mean, our, so, so our sometimes uh, third co-host, Jack Newell, uh, can't do it today. He's got a lot of homework in his book, but he... Uh, Send me a picture. I'm very jealous. He was at a South Bend football game, and he saw Pete and Chaston Buttigieg there. Ooh. So I think that was like my jealousy was erupting there when I, when I saw that picture. But uh, good for him. And if you're listening, Jack, congrats. I'm saying that through clenched teeth. All right. Anyways, um, yeah. So I'm sorry about no podcast last week to everybody, to all of our listeners. We we're all very busy, but we've got a lot to unpack today including the Gordon Sondland testimony, which was on Thursday. It was pretty much the whole day. You know, it kind of sucks that these happen during our school days, don't they? Yeah. Like, it's a shame. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes I, like, go on, like, CNN or Pod Save America and, like, watch, like, the recaps, but it is annoying, isn't it? But anyway, so Gordon Sondland testified, and this was the witness that the Trump administration were, was, was most dreading because they had, because he, uh, he had the most direct connection to this Trump-Ukraine call. And it showed why. Sondland started off with a bang, saying that Trump was absolutely behind a quid pro quo, which consisted off of a substantial amount of Congress-approved funding being withheld to Ukraine unless President Zelensky announced on CNN that the Bidens would be investigated. Griffin, what is your thoughts to this quid pro quo being almost confirmed pretty much? Well, with this quid pro, pro, ah, quid pro <laughs> quo being pretty much confirmed at this point, looks like impeachment is really on the books now uh, looks like the house is definitely going to vote for a full impeachment rather than just an inquiry uh trump would be put on trial as a result uh, by the united states senate which is i believe the time has come i mean what trump did in ukraine uh, with this quid pro quo is just it's inexcusable. It's fine to withdraw foreign aid because it, you're politically for it. But to do it to benefit yourself by trying to spread dirt on your political opponents, that is just inexcusable. It is terrible. And it's putting a party and individual over country. And that, I think, really represents his core values, which is him, his family, his administration, his party, and then his country on that list so like you know i think that really describes who he is as a person that he would compromise his country his political standing to get um his re-election prospects in order and 
this is what they've been planning to do with Joe Biden for a while. Um, the deal was they would announce it on CNN, which, um, according to Gordon Sondland, it was more about the annou- it was more about the announcement than the actual investigation, and they didn't even have to investigate; they just had to announce it. This is pretty obvious why they only had to announce it. Like, do you think that was the plan all? Along? Why do you think the the announcement was key for them? I think they just really had the plan all along, kind of as you were saying. I would agree with you there. Yeah, I mean, the announcement in more ways is more impactful than the investigation because, you know, millions of Americans tuning into CNN would just see that announcement and who knows what could happen, the speculation going from there. So that was a key part of it. And this Trump quid pro quo thing, it's, um, yeah, this is getting out of hand. The impeachment has always been, if there's a quid pro quo, we have to impeach. And now that this is pretty much confirmed by Gordon Sondland, then yeah. So he went on to say that everybody was in the loop, that Mike Pence... Uh, Mike Pompeo, Mick Mulvaney were all um, were all knowing about this quid pro quo and informed about it. What does this mean for Mike Pence, who has kept a very low profile so far? Well, Mike Pence is now in big danger, especially if Trump resigns or gets removed from office. More likely the former. If he resigns, then Pence is kind of like a scandal-ridden president now. I mean, with other vice presidents who are less involved, like Gerald Ford and Watergate, it wasn't so much a problem. But for Mike Pence, it would be not only him, but also Mick Mulvaney, who is serving a variety of jobs in the White House administration right now. And you're saying Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, who is basically a number one Trump fan in the White House. He's been there since the beginning. Uh, He's still there. Pompeo would likely have to be dismissed as Secretary of State as a result. So the question is, who would become our next Secretary of State? It's very interesting what would happen. Yeah, and I think it's very interesting from the Pence perspective, because we've seen the Trump administration embroiled in controversy so many times. And throughout all that, Mike Pence has kind of stayed out. He's not, he wasn't that involved in terms of Russia. But, and we didn't think he was that involved in terms of Ukraine. But now that we see that he knew about the quid pro quo, Solomon testified that when he asked Pence about the quid pro quo, Pence merely nodded. Um, is that like, I mean, that, is that really damaging to Mike Pence that he knew and acknowledged the quid pro quo? Yeah, that, that is very, very damaging. And he could potentially be president. I'm pretty sure he already said he wanted to run for president in 2024. 2024 regardless yeah. of whether we have what Trump happens president. in the next four yeah. years. Yeah. But um, no, that is very interesting. So Solomon went on to testify saying that he talked to Donald Trump multiple times about the quid pro quo and the Ukraine project. Now, Republicans' defense against witnesses like Bill Taylor and Marie Ivanovich was that, well, they never talked to Trump, um, therefore they're not relevant. Does that excuse kind of go out the window with Gordon Sondland? Yeah, I believe it does go out the window now. I mean, with this bombshell um, confirmation of quid pro quo, everything that the Republicans are saying is now trash, essentially. It is, I mean, like, you know, there Devin Nunes, who is chairing the Republican front on this, you know, has previously has previously brought up how the quid pro quo was never directly told to Sondland. It was hearsay and kind of his assumption. It was really strongly implied that the quid pro quo um, is that damaging for the Democrats at all, that there was no direct quote of Trump saying we are doing a quid pro quo. Um, I mean, I don't really I wouldn't really say so, because you don't have to directly say hey, we're, we're going to have a quid pro quo here. 
to actually have a quid pro quo. Like, it doesn't have to be that direct. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a fair question for the Republicans to ask where the evidence does lie of the quid pro quo. I mean, I do think that the quid pro quo is pretty obvious. I think Solomon knows about it. He testified. Um, Mulvaney confirmed it last month, too, that the Ukraine aid was tied. So I think when you look at it, yeah, there was a quid pro quo, but the Republicans can still, in my opinion, say that there's no direct quotation. And however weak that excuse may be, it is an excuse. Um, Yeah, so Solomon went on to say that they made a call back to Ukraine on September 9th. And this is important. The timeline here is important. So on July 26th, or the 5th, 25th, he made this call to Ukraine. On August 12th, the whistleblower complaint about this uh, call to Ukraine was acknowledged by the Trump administration. At this, at, in August, we didn't know what the whistleblower complaint was, but the Trump administration did. And on September 9th, he called Ukraine saying, no quid pro quo, do the right thing, tell him no quid pro quo. Um, after they were made aware of the whistleblower complaint. What are your thoughts on this, Griffin? I mean, I think it's really clear now that it was a quid pro quo, no matter like what um, uh, the Republicans say. I think, uh, given the phone call, if you look at the transcript of phone calls between President Zelensky and Trump, it, 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 it's a quid pro quo. There's really no other way of saying it. It, it is undeniable that it is a quid pro quo. Yeah, and I guess I am playing devil's advocate here because I agree with you that it is a quid pro quo. It's undeniably a quid pro quo. But um, I mean, and I think the reason why Donald Trump called Ukraine on September 9th saying no quid pro quo was because uh, the whistleblower complaint was lodged and they wanted to disrupt that but, and stench and you know, put out the fire. And um, yeah, so I mean, it's conspicuous that that was after the whistleblower complaint was made. But it is interesting. Um, what are your thoughts about Rudy Giuliani now in this role? Well, I think it was uh, Rudy Giuliani was part of like these this trio that was heavily implicated in this scandal. Uh, he is the president's personal attorney. Um, he is in a bit lot of trouble now, from the looks of it, especially uh, considering what he's done in Ukraine, uh, his involvement in this scandal. What is the, what is his involvement in this scandal? Well, he's um, he's Trump's attorney. He's trying to cover much of this up from the looks of it. He also was uh, key in trying to get in the uh, Zelensky's investigation of Hunter Biden. In uh, yeah. also, this is rather ironic because Rudy Giuliani is disobeying the law here, although he was a former prosecutor who. Uh, convicted many of disobeying the law in the past. So there's oh, yeah, some irony like, here. That's yeah. the kind of thing that uh, the administration does. But um, no, Solomon said that Giuliani was really hardcore on this. Uh, they worked with Giuliani. He said they didn't want to. They, quote, dealt with the hand they were gave. I think Giuliani really fronted this mission um, to with the Ukraine call. And I do... and. Apparently, Giuliani wanted Ukraine to also investigate Burisma, which is the oil company that Hunter Biden worked for in Kiev, Ukraine. And he also wanted Ukraine to investigate the DNC um, for the server in 2016, apparently. I don't know much about that, but Burisma is what they're tying to for Hunter Biden. Um, Griffin, how long can Republicans say and keep bringing up the Hunter Biden thing? What are your, what is your, what are your thoughts on that? 
I mean, not much longer. I'm pretty sure they're getting hurt more and more by the the Ukraine scandal hurting Trump, who's basically the figurehead of their party, that any attacks on Hunter Biden in particular aren't really going to matter as much. They won't have as much substance within them. Be too little too late. So, I mean, what I what I know is that Hunter Biden got a job at Kiev in the in Burisma, the oil company, because he got the job. And he even admits this because his last name was Biden. There was no nepotism involved. There was no Joe Biden, you know, pressing Ukraine to give him this job. He got the job and it helped that he was related to the vice president of the United States. And he made a lot of money at that job. There's no evidence of wrongdoing. And I think that um, they really want Hunter Biden to testify because this is what they're clinging to. But. It is the the excuses are getting weaker and weaker by the Republicans every day. And do you think the Democrats are winning impeachment far? I would say yes. However, I actually looked at 538 recently. Yeah. The number of Americans who support impeachment is actually near a tie now. I'm actually quite surprised by this. It used to be a little bit like a slight majority supported and now it's coming down closer to a plurality barely a plurality almost a tie i'm not really sure why this is happening why in your opinion is the percentage of people supporting impeachment such a relevant stat for the impeachment process because if majority of people support impeachment i believe it could persuade uh members of congress that would normally be loyal to the president they might have to rethink okay, should I vote with the opinion of myself or should I vote for the opinion of the majority yeah. of Americans' constituents? And that, is a good, and that is a good thing. I feel like if impeachment was vastly opposed by the majority of the country, like it was during the Bill Clinton time, it probably wouldn't be worth doing an impeachment because impeachment is supposed to be about bipartisan acknowledgement of a wrongdoing by the president. And I think people who do follow politics, like me and you and most other people who you know are sensible and see what's happening in these investigations can all see that there was a quid pro quo. Uh, Trump did something wrong. And what he did wrong compromises the powers of the presidency and the standing of the United States and the morals and the very values of our country. So I really do think that based on that, then I think impeachment is the right path to go down. And I'm glad we're going down it. But it feels like the Republicans are playing defense here so much. What's their what's their strategy for the next two months, three months of however long it's going to take. Well, I think, as you mentioned before, they're still going to try to spread dirt on Joe Biden and Hunter Biden for Hunter Biden getting his position at Burisma Holdings by simply being related to the vice president, even though it is true that Joe Biden didn't really have as much involvement. It was really just Hunter Biden having a name like hunter biden's name recognition that got him a position yeah a really well-paid position so i think at this point that's what they'll try to do not necessarily that it's a good strategy and i think their strategy also is uh i mean their end goal is to get hunter biden to testify in front of congress because he'd be attacked from all angles for that whole time and it would be suddenly the democrats who'd be playing defense there so i mean if you're a republican do you want the Bidens to come testify? Um, yeah, I, I think Republicans would generally want Bidens to uh, testify at this point. Yeah, but as you're saying, like the uh, excuses and the you know the turning and the talking points the Republicans are using are they're getting smaller by the second. And you know we saw all these Republicans, even some on Fox News, the Fox, the the infamous Fox and Friends morning show, they're all saying. 
Well, if there was a quid pro quo, then he should be impeached. But there's no quid pro quo, so no. And this was about a month ago. Now that there is a quid pro quo, it's really interesting. I'm, I'm going to be really interested to hear what those people, those same people are saying now. But um, who knows? Do you feel like there is a past for Republican senators turning on Donald Trump? Um, I feel like, yes, there, there could be a past. Although I feel that there need to be there would need to be more of the American populace that supports impeachment before you see Republican yeah. senators starting to turn on Trump. What does that take? A new revelation or um yes, it would take a new revelation most likely. Yeah, and I mean we did hear reports of Mitt Romney meeting with Donald Trump. Um who knows what that's about? Perhaps it's I think that if any Republican senator is going to vote for impeachment, it's going to be Mitt Romney or Lisa Murkowski. So if Mitt Romney can't convince some of his colleagues to do so, I mean, there's so many implications, including the election on the way. And frankly, I don't see it happening, but I think there is a path. Do you feel like the Republicans will be completely united or no. some break rank? Oh, really? No, not necessarily. I feel that there are some Republicans who might just be too loyal to Trump. Oh, yeah, there's his whole base. You know, we've seen the MAGA contingent in the House and the Senate, people like Matt Gates, or... But, you know, people... um, But Gordon Sondland said said he was concerned with Republican Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin about um, these uh, allegations against Trump. So... There is Republican concern. I'm sure there is. I'm, I'm sure every Republican is concerned. But breaking rank and voting against Trump would be incredibly damaging for their party. And uh, Yeah, it might be political suicide. Yeah, especially with many elections coming up, including a big presidential one. So that would be tough, I think, for Republicans to do that. And to be fair, if Democrats were put in the same position, I don't know how many of them would do it still with the political implications coming up. Mm-hmm. But... Um, what do you think about the Democratic last talking point before we move on? What do you think about the Democratic strategy so far for impeachment? I think it's working so far. It, it it's workable, but I mean it it isn't decisive, but it's workable. Yeah, I think the key for them is to simplify impeachment down so the American person, so the average American person who isn't following politics uh, can understand what Trump did wrong and vote against him in 2020. I think that's the goal for Democrats. And I think they're doing a better job of that, but there's so many factors. Like the average American isn't following Gordon Sondland, quid pro quo, Rudy Giuliani, Kurt Volker, Ukraine, Hunter Biden, Burisma. Like that's a lot of things. And the thing about Bill Clinton's impeachment was that it was kind of easy to know. Yeah. So I don't know. Do you think the Democrats have a way of, you know, making this click with the average voter? Yeah, I think, as you said, as long as they really oversimplify it so that it's, like, easy to digest. I mean, I guess with the, if newspapers publish a really big headline that simplifies why uh, Trump should be impeached, then that would work. Although um, it really relies on the – it depends more on the news, not, not the Democratic Party itself. Yeah, and there's going to be so much more to follow about this. Watch the space. I'm sure we'll see the House uh, vote soon after these trials are done, which will be interesting. And it'll it'll surely go on to the Senate after this bombshell Gordon Sondland testimony, which is really interesting. But um, yeah, obviously more on impeachment in later later podcasts. Let's move on to our second topic of the day, the 2020, uh, the fifth 2020 Democratic debate. Um, 
we all know who all the candidates were. We've watched plenty of these debates. Uh, mm-hmm. Griffin, what were your overall thoughts on this debate? Well, I don't really think it was the best night for Joe Biden to start with. I mean, he was more gaffe prone. He mentioned how the only black senator ever elected endorsed him, although there black were woman two. Senator, yeah. yeah, black female senator endorsed him, although the other <laughs> one was on the stage right with him. I mean, how do you not realize that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, he also, um, not this wasn't actually during the debate. It was rather before he said he opposed legalization of marijuana, which is not only very popular amongst Democrats, but also amongst the general populace. I believe that the general populace in America right now supports legalizing recreational marijuana. And I'm pretty sure almost no one supports keeping a ban on medical marijuana so that he really shot himself in the foot there he and also be, sent yeah. out uh, he also sent out a fundraising email and it, this was right before the debate mind you and in the email it says i have just finished the fifth democratic debate <laughs> so whoopsies. so it shocked everybody because whoever thought that they pre-write their emails right like what a radical thing to do yeah. but about like Joe Biden and the marijuana thing, like mar- marijuana is complicated, and some of my like liberal friends get mad at me when I say that I'm not fully in support of legalizing it. I think that there are pros and cons to both sides, and I've talked with health teachers about this. I've talked with people who are experts on this, and it's more complicated than it seems. And I mean, it is bad for Joe Biden to say that. And of course, we saw Cory Booker with a funny joke, like, "Oh, you must have been high when you were saying that." <laughs> but it shouldn't be that ridiculous of an opinion to go such against the party quota. But um, no, I did. I did Joe Biden had a pretty bad night. He, um, the way he talked, he like had to, you know, a lot of verbal crutches. He, um, yeah, I mean, one pause. of the one of the weird things he said is, "I come out of the black community in terms of my support," which is. A little weird phrasing. Um, I think yeah. Booker kind of like just stared at him after he said, <laughs> I, I come out of the black community. I think before he said, um, in terms of my support, I think Booker was just like surprised and staring at him. He was like, what did you just say? It is. Is there a reason why you think that Joe Biden is winning overwhelmingly among black voters? Is it something that I don't, I don't, I don't it's hard to tell why. Is it because he's old and more establishment? And they Um, all know him to be connected to Obama? Yeah, I believe black voters are supportive of Biden because he is closely tied to Barack Obama, who is hugely popular amongst the African-American community. Mm -hmm. And also, I believe that African-American Democrats generally, especially in the South, aren't so progressive from what it seems. I think... Well, consider yeah. this is the Bible Belt in the South. So generally, not only are white people more religious in the South, but African-Americans are generally more religious in the South as well. And they're a bit more on the traditional side, uh, a bit more socially conservative than like a Democrat from New York or New England or California. So a uh, more moderate Biden, who's a bit more prone, like he's a bit more of like a status quo candidate not exactly actually let me rephrase that not exactly status quo but more incremental and not yeah. as radical a uh, reformist i think uh african americans find that in the south generally find that appealing and that's why south south carolina which is a state with many black voters i think uh 
He's overwhelmingly popular there. He's probably going to win that, which is one of the key early early primary states. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that could be attributed to a lot of Biden's success, and I think that will put him very much in contention to win this nomination. But, um, yeah, so Joe Biden, you know, he's had good nights. He's had bad nights. This was... This goes with the first debate. I mean, the first debate was a calamity for Joe Biden, but this debate was just, it didn't inspire confidence whatsoever. And I like Joe Biden a lot, but it wasn't the best night for him. What did you mm-hmm. think about uh, Warren or Bernie Sanders at Progressives? Well, let's see. Warren and Bernie Sanders, they didn't have anything too decisive, although it was good. It, it, it's not really going to give them much movement in the polls, I think. Uh, I remember Warren going head to head with Cory Booker over a wealth tax. Uh, Booker yeah. was uh, Booker was against a wealth tax, saying, "You know, we can fund all these things that Warren is talking about without a wealth tax. We don't really need it because a wealth tax also has its flaws." And Warren was, I think Booker may have won that exchange, although um, I don't really think it's that big of a deal that he won it. And, you know, the wealth tax does have its um, pros and cons to it. I do support the wealth tax. I mean, we saw, we saw someone like Jeff Bezos today give $98 million to the homeless. That's 0.09 of his net worth, percent of his net worth. So if we had a wealth tax, which would draw substantially larger amounts of money and help those causes, I think that, you know, it would have net positives. But I'm not sure that Warren and Bernie Sanders are the people um especially warren are the people who are arguing it best i think that a lot of people disagree with her um you know tear the house down um very very far left and someone someone who's more centrist needs to be more vocal on a wealth tax in my opinion but um it was good that wealth tax got is getting more and more discussed um pete Buttigieg. <sighs> came into the debate, we thought a lot more of him would uh, be present in this debate because he had just uh, emerged as a frontrunner in Iowa, which is a pretty big deal. Um, and we thought that he would be attacked on all sides from Democrats. He really wasn't. What do you think about Buttigieg? Buttigieg had an okay debate night performance, but um, okay for him is actually pretty good because he is ahead in Iowa right now, and he is also surging up to at least third place, possibly second in New Hampshire, which is really, really good news. So if you, if you can yeah. win Iowa and New Hampshire, chances are like the nomination's his. Cause, Do you think that will be the case if he does win those two, nom- two, those two states? Well, think about it this way. Bernie Sanders won New Hampshire yeah. by a landslide, although he lost Iowa. Had he not won New Hampshire, then there's really no way he could have won the nomination. 2008, Barack Obama won Iowa by decent amount but hillary narrowly edged him out in new hampshire had she not won new hampshire uh wouldn't have been a competitive primary if you win the first two states it's really really winning one state out of the two winning iowa is very critical and it can give you momentum in new hampshire if you win new hampshire it gives you momentum in nevada the chain goes on to south carolina super tuesday the rest of the states so uh for Buttigieg. Buttigieg isn't going to win in Nevada or South Carolina, nor will he win in but places he can get like close New York. Or... Ne- he can get close. And I know many of these states do have shared delegates where, um, you know, you don't have to be in first place to win some chunk of the delegates. But 
I don't know. I feel like Buttigieg could be the exception. I mean, any other candidate winning Iowa and New Hampshire would immediately be the front runner in the race. But you look at the areas where Buttigieg is popular, and in the Midwest, he is very much popular. But in other places, I don't know. I'm still a skeptic on this. Well, here's the thing but about do you think, Buttigieg. Yeah. Now, one thing is he is a very young and energetic candidate who can inspire of the base. Um, he isn't popular with African-American voters at all, though, um, especially all. considering, didn't he, there was some controversy where I believe it was like a photo of, it was meant to be of African-Americans who supported Buttigieg, but it was really just photoshopped Kenyans. Oh, I didn't um, hear anything about that. No, I don't also, know. one thing about Mayor Pete is... He would be the youngest president in American history and the first gay president in American history. Thing is, I don't know if America is exactly ready for that because not too long ago, most Americans opposed gay marriage. Uh, It took until probably around 2013-ish until a majority of Americans began to support gay marriage. Now, a majority, like, Almost everyone in America supports gay marriage now, uh, and LGBT rights, of course. However, it this has happened like uh, recently, only in the past few years. This hasn't been around. This hasn't been the norm for the longest time. Also, Pete Buttigieg is a millennial, and there's a very big generation gap between like baby boomers, that generation, and millennials, especially along political lines, because. Uh, boomers, baby boomers are known to be more conservative. Uh, okay, boomer. Um, also, <laughs> mil- millennials are generally known to be more liberal, and the divide is growing. And also, well, Gen Z, Gen Z, our generation is getting in the mix as well. But it's really the millennial boomer gap is the boomers just don't want Buttigieg from the looks of it at all. Yeah, and they want, and that Joe Biden is getting a lot of support from them. Um, but no, I do think that I don't think uh, him being the first LGBTQ president would be a factor that much. I think him being very young and a generation gap is a factor um, when people are deciding to vote for him. I think some of the messages he says don't really resonate with a specific uh, demographic of Americans, some very older ones. I think that's fine. I think that his target audience is much different than Bernie Sanders' target audience or Joe Biden's target audience. But he's got, he's got people listening to him. He's got momentum in the early states. I do think that he has a path to this nomination, but it's, he's definitely not a candidate without his mm-hmm. faults. Yep. So, um, yeah, I want to talk about, uh, I've been really excited to talk about on this podcast for uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi! What do you think? Yeah. Well, uh, Tulsi Gabbard did get hit by Kamala Harris early on as revenge. Revenge. Revenge for yeah. what Kamala um, faced in the, yeah, Tulsi Tul- did to Kam- what Tulsi yeah. did to Kamala back in July. Now, Tulsi, mm-hmm. I mean, Tulsi definitely hammered hard. Uh, she really hit hard on the going against the establishment message that she has going against uh, neoliberal foreign policy. However, um, her past had finally caught up with her and Harris did get in some good blows, especially considering her past uh, time on Fox News, her um, her repeated criticisms of Barack Obama. Uh, her, I, I, I guess Harris was trying to point her out as 
disloyal to the Democratic Party. However, the thing is, I don't think um, Tulsi Gabbard is going to take a very big hit from this because many of her supporters do acknowledge that she isn't real. Tulsi Gabbard is not an establishment candidate. And I don't think Tulsi Gabbard supporters have a very serious problem with uh, attacking the establishment of the Democratic Party. So I don't think Tulsi Gabbard is going to lose much support. I just don't think it's easy for her to gain after this. Tulsi Gabbard, in my in my opinion, is the villain of this Democratic primary. She's got she has a way she articulates very well. She speaks very clearly and she gets her message across 100 percent of the time. But the way the first time she got anything to say, she immediately went in to how the Democratic Party was terrible, how the Democratic Party was not formed by the people anymore. And she trashed Obama. She trashed the candidates on the stage. She didn't trash one person. That one person is Donald Trump. So I'm really just confused what her motives are in this primary. And the second that she did say that the Democratic Party is not represented by the people anymore, which I would highly dispute that. But when she said that, the Trump, the Trump Twitter base, the official Donald Trump uh, campaign account put up on their Twitter, Tulsi Gabbard saying that. And they were like, see, look at what Tulsi Gabbard is doing. So she's not helping. She, I don't know what she wants. She can't win this nomination. She just wants to cause chaos. And I really feel like that's the case. She effectively destroyed Kamala Harris's campaign. I feel like if not for um, her attack on her, which was the headline moment of the second debate, uh, many people would still be supporting Kamala, including me. And, um, she, I just don't know what she wants. Why is why is she staying in this race? Oh, oh, is that a question directed to me? Yes. Well, I will answer that. It can yeah. be, sure. <laughs> yes, yes. She's staying in this race because I think she might be trying to cuddle up. Now, this is just conspiracy theory. She could actually be trying to cuddle up to Trump um, or maybe even Biden, but uh, not as likely. I think she might be trying to run, gain, like, to inspire third party? a movement. Yeah, she actually could run third party. That is a possibility. Well, kind whatever happens. That's things up. Whoever the nominee is, there's going to be a huge portion of people who are against that nominee. I mean, with the exception of maybe Bernie Sanders, Warren, Biden, and Buttigieg, the realist nominees have bases against them. So I do think that there is an opening for a third party run, even if they lean Republican or or liberal and Tulsi Gabbard, just you have the feeling that she could ruin things in the way that Bernie Sanders did for the Democrats in 2016. Um, yeah, I, I suppose that is a possibility. Although I feel if she drops out now, that's a big if it's less, well, it's actually less likely considering She's abandoning her U.S. House seat, actually. So, yeah, um, I think a third party run is definitely on the books. Also, there's this campaign pledge that most candidates have signed with Gabbard and Yang being the exceptions that they would support the Democratic nominee no matter who they are. Gabbard and Yang are the only ones who didn't sign it. Yeah, and I think I mean, I don't know how much you can read into Andrew Yang. I don't know how much there was to talk about injuring in the state but Tulsi Gabbard you have a feeling that the day she qualifies she, the day she fails to qualify for a debate that's not the last we'll see of her mm-hmm. there's going to be something more into the 2020 election year and maybe beyond that in her future in politics and she could be a warning sign to the Democrats the Democrats have never had 
a breakaway character who's really gone against the party status. I mean, the Republicans have someone like Sarah Palin or Donald Trump who have been much different from the stock character Republicans and have really changed the Republican Party for the worse, arguably. And the Democrats have not had that. And you look at Tulsi Gabbard, the way she conducts herself, the way she attacks other Democrats on the stage when none of them are doing that. I feel like she could have a long lasting influence on the Democrats if she chooses to be more involved in politics in the future. And I'm worried. I don't like her. Uh-huh. But anyway, what, what other candidates uh, did you draw any well, from? Um, I would actually like to talk about Yang. Um, Yang did not say much, actually, during this debate. He was he allotted does. only about seven minutes of speaking time during the entire debate, which is the least. Now, I'm just going to speak from the heart here. Yang has been treated unfairly by the media. Uh, MSNBC only allowed him to speak for seven minutes, and they did not allow him to speak for the first quarter of the debate. Uh, also, they don't include him as much in polling um, graphics. Um, they actually include candidates who are polling lower than he is uh, in polling graphics, but not him. They allowed candidates who are polling lower than him more speaking time than he did. So there was the largest deficit between speaking time and average polling with Yang, and and this is repeatedly ha- uh, this is oh repeatedly every debate occurring. yeah. So Yang, I think, is justified in asking MSNBC for a formal apology for what they've done. It's like me- I don't like the media doesn't like Yang. There's really no, no they don't, and I think that they don't view him as a serious candidate. I don't view him as like I mean I do view him as a he, serious he's candidate, a serious but... candidate. There, he's no a serious candidate. Yeah, it. but uh, he's not. I don't know how to articulate it right, but the way that every time he's asked a question, he talks about the freedom dividend, and you feel like he says cool outsider stuff just to get attention. Like, oh, I'm going to use PowerPoint of the State of the Union. Like, sure. Does that make more people vote for you? But, like, I don't know. I feel like Andrew Yang is kind of something that the Democrats are trying to repel. Uh, We've seen that he can easily get um, a lot of attention and votes from young millennials, as he's very strong in those demographics. But it is interesting how that is playing out. And I feel like Andrew Yang will be out of this race soon. I don't know. Uh, I don't know about that. I think Andrew Yang's kind of the candidate for, like, the weird, nerdy the weird nerdy type yeah i can definitely see that or like you know um millennials who aren't that involved in politics gen z i think gen z like gen Gen z the old the older gen z voters are going for him in my opinion yeah well only a few gen z people can vote yeah only like how many only the ones on the border of gen z and millennial can vote we've talked a lot about uh generations on this yeah generation generation elect yeah, do you know how, like, I got its name? Like, I, you know, I spent, like, a whole week thinking about the name. But like, I was thinking, like, yeah, like, president-elect is, like, the next president. So, like, generation-elect is, yeah, like, not, like, the not next generation. Yeah, but not everything we talk about is on the presidency. I mean... Oh, no, but, like, you know... Like, a a fair amount of... Too, or, like, government-elect. So. Governor but, like, yeah, generation-elect. It was cool. Better than many of the other names that were suggested by my parents. Anyways. Um, yeah, so uh, that's our wrap on the fifth debate. Oh, it wasn't Klobuchar. The... Oh, yeah, sure. Can I, can I say Klobuchar, something yeah, about Klobuchar? Uh, what was going on with her hair? I mean, she was shaking during the debate. She was shaking. Um, I mean, if you watch SNL, did she have, like, this little spidey sense to attack, uh, the like, Warren with, uh, 
like her hair tingling with it was that like a little spike yeah sense? did you watch snl you betcha i did yeah i love that was great i love uh, um tulsi gabbard i, I, I love tom steyer will ferrell's tom steyer tom steyer's prob- now I'm, I'm just going to say this for the record tom steyer is probably one of the least inspiring uh he's a very boring <laughs> candidate not really sure exactly why he's running but uh, my favorite he, stats so far is like um he spent the gdp of uruguay to get on this debate stage yeah yeah, so that's all you need to do. And I'm sure Michael Bloomberg. And also, why didn't why didn't he blink? Yeah. I mean, Will Ferrell Will Ferrell says it all. He didn't blink during the debate. His, Wait, did why, Tom Steyer actually like in real life not blink? Uh, I I didn't I did not see a single blink from Tom Steyer. His eyes wow. were always like really wide open during the debate. I mean, was that's he scared? I mean. I would be, but yeah, that was definitely very good. I think uh, the Joe Biden actor on SNL, he's yeah, Woody Harrelson. That's Woody Sar- that's he's actually brilliant. Yeah, but um, anyways, yeah, I mean that was a good sketch, but it was uh, a fine debate. I feel like um, we've seen a lot of debates yeah. by now. I'm kind of ready to move on to the actual voting, which will come pretty soon, right? Can February. I go off on a brief tangent here? Absolutely. Yes. So this next Democratic debate is in December, about a week before Christmas in la uh the qualifications are they've gotten harder you have to get two hundred thousand donors uh and one of the two polling requirements which is at least two polls at six percent or more support in early polling state in the early primary states or you have to get four percent support in four polls anywhere as long as they're dnc sanctioned so six candidates so far which are Harris, Buttigieg, Biden, Warren, Sanders, and Klobuchar qualify. From the looks of it, Yang will qualify, as will, will Bloomberg. Uh, Gabbard. Uh, it's actually a bit too early to say with Bloomberg, considering he just got in. Yeah. Um, so Gabbard will qualify? Yeah, I think actually Gabbard will. Uh, That's she's, surprising. She's like right there on the donor mark, and also she has... She only needs one more poll at 4% or more. Also, I think Tyrell, Steyer will make it as well. Um, okay. The only candidate I think gets booted, though, is uh, Cory Booker. I mean, yeah. Cory Booker, I mean, uh, he did make the joke, like, were you high when you said that to mm-hmm. Joe Biden? Although he just hasn't had a breakout moment, and I think his campaign is, like, Coming near, to an end slowly. like it's uh, near the end. Most yeah, I you know I sometimes I wonder to myself why isn't he doing better? I mean, he's inspirational. He's a good speaker. He's right on all the issues. It's confusing why he's not you know in the top. If tier. Harris, if Harris and Biden didn't get in the race, I think Booker would likely be pulling much higher. I think like he's a he'd good, be a front runner. Yeah, no, I think we all considered. Do you remember? Yeah, it's funny. Like listening to our old podcast, we we're all like, okay, so we think that. Kamala Harris is going to win the nomination. <laughs> I remember me like really going out on a limb for that. Yeah, I, and, uh, there, there was one point where Kamala Harris was in second, and that was in July. And then I remember when we now. when she entered the race, we were like, "This is going to be the front runner," and that was very odd. But it's interesting this retrospective, and it's yeah. I thought Beto was going to be a front runner at some point. Yeah, <laughs> but um, it's a lot has changed. Um, but yeah, it's. I mean, this primary is exhausting. We've been following this for. So 11 long. months and we're gonna have we're approaching a one year anniversary eight more months of this like okay but yep in britain they like get it done in two weeks we should be like <laughs> but anyways uh yeah so um enough 
plenty of words on this podcast have been said about the Democratic primary and more. Oh, yeah. Said. <laughs> but um, uh, we will uh, get back to you uh, over the break, hopefully with a new podcast, Thanksgiving break that is, uh, sometime at the end of this month, surely. Um, please be sure to rate or review our podcast. We really definitely like that. It makes my day. That's not an understatement. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for listening. Uh, definitely yeah. be sure to tune in later on. Yeah. Have a good day. Yeah. Have a good day and the best wishes for Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, fellas. Yeah, thanks.